Welcome to the second of our new 10 in 10 Essex Court Chambers podcast series. Thanks to everyone who joined us last week for our episode with Graham Dunning and Sid Dar discussing the fascinating case of Taurus and Somo. We've been overwhelmed by the feedback and I'm delighted to say so many subscribers. We're all very much enjoying putting this podcast together for you. If you missed last week's episode, you can find it in the podcast library in iTunes, Spotify or wherever you are listening from. So on with the show. In this episode, we're talking to Jeffrey Gruder QC and Philippa Hopkins QC about one of the leading shipping cases of the last decade, the Supreme Court decision in Guard Marine and Energy versus China National Chartering, better known as the Ocean Victory. Jeffrey appeared in the Ocean Victory in the Court of Appeal. Jeffrey Gruder is a senior silk at Essex Court Chambers, many of you may know him. The legal directories describe him variously as charming and unflappable, with an extraordinary knowledge of the law and incredibly experienced. Philippa Hopkins took silk in 2018. The legal directories describe her, quite rightly, as very clever and thoughtful, thorough and persuasive, and an absolutely superb tactician. Let's see how we get on discussing this interesting case. Philippa, perhaps we could start uh, by just explaining why you and Geoffrey chose to talk about this case. Thanks, Stephen. Yes, the Ocean Victory is an interesting case on several levels. As we'll see, it involved issues of importance to shipping lawyers of a kind that don't actually reach the courts all that often because so many shipping disputes, especially charter party disputes, get determined in arbitration. But like so many shipping cases with which the contract textbooks are littered, it raised questions of more general importance to commercial law, especially in relation to insurance. And we also hope to show that the issues that arose in the case are of particular relevance and significance in the current climate. That's great. Uh, could you start perhaps by just outlining the factual background for us? Yes, of course. So the dispute arose from a marine casualty at the port of Kashima in Japan in October 2006. The vessel, the Ocean Victory, was discharging her cargo of iron ore when a severe storm blew up. That meant that she had to leave the berth and make for open water. And because of high winds and swell, the master completely lost control of the vessel. She was driven back onto the wall of a breakwater and she grounded and eventually sank. At the time of the casualty, she was under demise charter from her registered owners to an associated company. And she'd then been time chartered to Sinochart, who in turn had trip time chartered her to Daiichi. And that train of contracts is important to understand the issues in the case. Jeffrey, uh, could you summarise for us the claims that were brought in this case? Yes, the claims arising from the incident were very large indeed. The vessel's agreed insured value was $88.5 million, and the losses arising from salvage, wreck removal and loss of earnings were another $50 million odd. Those claims were brought by Guard, the P&I Club, which insured both the owners and the demise charterers. They're taking an assignment of the rights of both those parties. The basis of the claims was a breach of the safe port warranty that was contained in all the charters, demise, time and trip time. Guard claimed that demise charters were liable to the owners, though no claim was ever made. Guard, as assignee of the demise charters, then brought claims under the time charter against Sinochart, and Sinochart sought to pass any liability onto Daiichi under the sub-charter. 
And what were the main issues before the Supreme Court? As you'd expect, at the trial, which took place before Mr Justice Tier, there were a number of factual issues regarding the circumstances of the incident. There was also an issue as to whether the master's navigation had been negligent, but the judge found it was not, and the Court of Appeal agreed. But by the time the case reached the Supreme Court, there were only three live issues. First, on the facts as found by the lower courts, were the charters in breach of the safe port warranty as a matter of law? Second, what is sometimes referred to in shorthand as the joint insurance issue or the subrogation issue? This arose because Clause 12 of the Demise Charter provided for joint insurance without any separate right of recovery by the owners against the Demise Charterers. So the time charters argued that there could be no claim by the owners against the demise charterers and so no liability which the demise charterers could pass on to the time charterers. Third, if there was a breach of the safe port warranty, were charterers entitled to limit their losses under limitation convention as implemented by the Merchant Shipping Act 1995? Those issues were entirely separate. We're going to focus on the first and second issues today. The answer in brief to the question raised by the third issue is that the Supreme Court held that charterers were not entitled to limit liability under the Convention, approving the Court of Appeals 2004 decision in the CMA Jakarta. Okay, then let's talk first about the safe port issue. Philippa, can you give us a little more detail about what the issue was and how the Supreme Court decided it? Yes, the facts to have in mind here are Mr Justice Tier's findings that the incident was caused by a combination of two characteristics of the port of Kashima. The first was long waves causing severe swell, which meant that the vessel had to leave the berth, and the second was gale-force winds, which meant that having left the berth, she couldn't safely navigate the channel. Now, either of those two events, the waves causing swell on the one hand and the gale force winds on the other, did sometimes happen. And indeed, both were noted in the guide to port entry as being risks at the port. But what was unusual was that the two happened in combination. That had never happened in the history of the port. And why was that important? Well, it was important because of what a safe port warranty actually entails. The charterer warrants at the date of nomination that the port is prospectively safe. A safe port warranty isn't a continuing warranty. There may in some cases be a secondary obligation to re-nominate if a port becomes unsafe, but that wasn't relevant here and we can put it to one side for today. The prospective nature of the warranty is important because it means, as Lord Clark put it in the Ocean Victory, that the promise assumes a normal state of affairs. And that's set out in the classic test for breach of the safe port warranty, which is that set out by Lord Justice Sellers as long ago as 1958 in the Eastern City. He said that a port will not be safe unless, in the relevant period of time, the particular ship can reach it, use it and return from it, without, in the absence of some abnormal occurrence, and I'm emphasising those words, being exposed to danger which cannot be avoided by good navigation and seamanship. So, 
if the cause of the casualty is in fact an abnormal occurrence, quote unquote, there's no breach because at the time of the nomination, the port was by definition prospectively safe. Now, because it was found that the dangers in the ocean victory couldn't have been avoided by good navigation and seamanship, that's what Mr. Justice Tier and the Court of Appeal had found, the real question in the ocean victory was, were the dangers an abnormal occurrence? Mr. Justice Tier said, no, they weren't. He held that the swell was predictable and the winds were predictable, and there was no meteorological reason why you couldn't have the two in combination. Therefore, he said, you can't say this was abnormal. But both the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court held that that was the wrong approach. The safe port issue was only addressed by Lord Clark in the Supreme Court. His was the only judgment on the issue, and all the other judges agreed with him. And he said, you don't take the various factors in isolation. You must take what he described as a unitary approach. He said the combination of the long waves and the strong northerly winds was theoretically foreseeable in the sense that both could happen and therefore they could theoretically happen in combination. But he said it was unexpected and it was out of the ordinary course. And for those reasons, he said, the combination was an abnormal occurrence and that meant that there was no breach of the warranty, and so charterers were not liable. Philippa, could you perhaps just help us by explaining that clarification? Yes, I think it is a case of clarification. The Supreme Court decision does give one some guidance as to how to assess whether a casualty arises from an abnormal occurrence so that there's no breach, or whether it arises from a characteristic of the port, in which case there will be a breach of the safe port warranty. Lord Clark made clear that it isn't simply a question of foreseeability. That's not enough to determine one way or another whether something is an abnormal occurrence. And you can see that because, as he said in the judgment, an event may be foreseeable but unusual and unexpected. Take earthquakes in San Francisco. Those could be said to be foreseeable, but it doesn't mean that they are unexpected. So that wouldn't render the port unsafe. What you have to consider is what is normal for the particular port at the time of year. You have to consider how likely it is that the event will occur. If the event, though theoretically foreseeable, is very unlikely, there is much more of a case for saying that there is an abnormal occurrence. So is there anything left to argue about as regards safe ports, or does the ocean victory effectively settle all outstanding questions? I would highlight two things there. First, Lord Clark's clarification of what constitutes an abnormal occurrence is all very fine, but it might not be so easy to apply in practice. I think it may be reasonably straightforward where one is talking about physical and meteorological things such as sandbanks and waves and winds. But I can see there being plenty of arguments still to have where one is concerned with other types of unsafety, sometimes referred to for shorthand as political unsafety. What happens, for example, if there are detentions or crew illness as a result of disease at a port? At the moment, that's a very hot topic for obvious reasons. What about detentions or confiscations as a result of the unexpected enforcement of a law, which has always existed and is therefore foreseeable, but is very rarely enforced? What about piracy in safe port warranties? What about changes in probability? 
can something that is abnormal at one time become normal at another time? One could see that having current resonance. It could happen in the context of weather hazards, perhaps because of climate change, with bad weather events becoming more likely. So I can see plenty of arguments to be had there. I think the second area, which is potentially up for grabs, though perhaps more difficult, at some point, and in the right case, someone might want to grapple with the question of whether it is really right that the safe port warranty is only prospective and not continuing. That rule waters the warranty down, no pun intended, uh, hugely from the owner's point of view. Is it actually right that owners should always bear the risk of an abnormal occurrence? The contrary wasn't argued in the Supreme Court. That was assumed to be the law. But there are definitely arguments to be had there. It would mean overruling the House of Lords 1983 decision in the area number two, and that might be quite a tall order. Nonetheless, it seems to me that that is an interesting issue which uh, somebody in the right case might want to grapple with again at some point. Thank you. Those are very interesting insights, especially given the resonance with climate change and pandemics uh, and how those might affect this particular issue around the world in the future. Let's move on to the other issue, the joint insurance question or the so-called subrogation issue. Jeff, uh, could you just explain in more detail how this arose in this particular case? Yes. Uh, Clause 12 of the Demise Charter, which was the standard Bearcon 89 wording, required the demise charterers to arrange insurance for both the owners and the demise charterers at their expense and in the joint names of both owners and charterers. Clause 29, on the the other hand, was a typewritten clause which expressly imposed safe port obligations on demise charterers. It It was argued by the charterers down the line that despite the working of Clause 29, because Clause 12 envisaged owners and demise charters being jointly insured, that meant there was no scope for owners bringing any claim against the demise charters, and so no liability which demise charters could pass on down the line. The argument arises from the well-known rule set out uh, perhaps most clearly in the House of Laws decision in Co-op versus Taylor Young, that it's an implied term of a contract of insurance, that there can be no claims by one co-insured against the other, including subrogated claims. But the co-op versus Taylor-Young line of cases doesn't deal at all with the question of how the co-insurance principle affects claims against third-party wrongdoers who aren't parties to the insurance arrangements. And how was this issue determined? Because of the findings on the safe port issue, the Supreme Court didn't actually have to reach a conclusion on the joint insurance question, but they chose to do so because they'd heard full argument on it and because it had been argued and decided in the courts below. In contrast to the safe port issue, this was an issue on which there was not agreement between the five judges of the court. The majority, Lord Mance, Lord Hodd and Lord Torson, consider that provisions of Clause 12 of the Demise Charter did indeed preclude a claim by the owners against the Demise Charterers and hence a claim down the line. They, that they held that the insurance arrangements were intended to be a complete code as between owners and Demise Charterers, leaving no scope 
for claims for breach of a safe warranty. But Lords Sumption and Clark disagreed. They accepted the argument, which I had devised for the Court of Appeal, which was that the demise charter is under a liability to the owner for the breach of safe warranty, but that liability is satisfied when the insurance proceeds are paid over to the owner. The result on that analysis, of course, is that there is an underlying liability, and so a claim capable of being passed on to the charterers. So as with our discussion about Taurus last week, we're faced here with yet another 3-2 split in the Supreme Court. Um, Jeff, do you think the majority decision was the right one here? Perhaps I'm biased, but no, I think the minority were right and the majority was wrong. I think the minority were right as a matter of construction of the Charter. Clause 12 didn't contain an express waiver of subrogation, whereas another clause, Clause 13, did. It doesn't seem right to imply a waiver of subrogation into Clause 12 in those circumstances. I also think they were right as a matter of principle. It does not seem correct that the wording of the contract as regards insurance should have so dramatic an impact on third parties unless expressly stated to do so. It's perhaps not without interest that the most recent version of the standard demise charter form, Bearcon 17, effectively reverses the effect of the ocean victory. Amendments to the form state in terms that coinsurance ensures payment of insurance proceeds to cover the owner's loss, but does not prevent the owners or their insurers from claiming against the demise charterer, nor the owner or the demise charterer or their insurers from claiming against third parties. Now, is this point purely of interest to shipping lawyers, or does it have wider application? No, uh, the implication of this decision uh, are far, far wider than that. In any contractual context, the issue can arise as to whether contractual arrangements between the parties are such that the parties have agreed that compensation should be dealt with by insurance payments rather than the normal rules of tort and breach of contract. And those arrangements need not be joint insurance arrangements. There are many contracts, leases for example, under which one party is obliged to pay for insurance for the benefit of another, and that arrangement has been held to preclude rights of subrogation. The Court of Appeal decision in Mark Rowlands and Bernie Inns, which is a landlord and tenant case, is perhaps the best known example. And this issue has current relevance. I've had to consider a case recently in the context of a lease on a restaurant, which, like all such establishments, had to close during lockdown. The landlord has insurance, which, at least arguably, and in the the light of the FCA uh, uh, decision two days ago, probably does cover a loss of rent in those circumstances premiums were paid by the tenant. Does the landlord have a claim against the tenant for rent or must he look to the insurers? It seems to me 
that there must be a strong argument based on the ocean victory that the landlord must look to the insurers because the wording of the lease treats the insurance arrangements as a scheme by which loss is allocated between the parties. In any given case, one would have to look at the wording of the contract in question and the insurance arrangements very carefully. Well, thank you very much indeed, Jeff and Philippa, for that fascinating insight into this particular case. Um, as with so many shipping cases, there's the temptation to see it as confined to that particular area, uh, and yet it contains decisions on questions of law which have wider application, as we all know. The law of uh, contract is heavily influenced by shipping disputes, and that seems particularly the case in relation to the co-insurance and subrogation issue, as Jeff's just explained. So thank you very much indeed. Uh, my name is Stephen Hausman. I've been your host for this second in the series of the podcasts we call 10 in 10. I'm looking forward to the discussion next week, in next week's podcast, and that will be about the Abliazov litigation involving James Sheehan and Tim Aku. I'd like to give thanks, please, uh, to Lorraine Abayagi, a junior tenant in Chambers, for her assistance in research on this particular case for this podcast. As always, you can get access to the podcast on the Essex Court Chambers website, as well as other sources such as Spotify and iTunes. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to be the first to hear when the next episode is out. <laughs>